0: Hello and welcome to 20 Minute Health Talk. I am David Reich Hale. Today we speak to Dr. Charles Schlein, Senior Vice President and Chair of Pediatric Services at Northwell Health, about the impact the latest COVID-19 wave is having on children regionally and nationwide. But first, we talk about COVID-19 testing. Our co-host, Rob Hoyle, speaks with Dr. Dwayne Brining, Executive Director at Northwell Health Labs, as Dr. Brining answers some of your common questions amid the Omicron surge.
1: So, Dr. Brining, the U.S. recently shattered records with over one million COVID-19 cases recorded in a single day. Uh, With these numbers, accurate testing is imperative to keep people safe. Uh, Can you walk us through the different testing options available for people?
2: Uh, Yeah, there's basically two main categories of tests that are being used, and uh, uh, it it makes sense to have a a two-pronged strategy for this. There's the PCR test, which everybody knows about, extremely highly accurate tests. These tests can detect a dozen molecules in a sample, um, but they do require specialized laboratory staff. The, the sample has to go to a laboratory to be tested. Um, they're expensive and they're a little slower than we would like them to be. And then there's the rapid antigen test. Um, they're quick and easy and cheap. I think you can get a, a pack with uh, two tests in it for about $15 now. Um, you get results in about 15 minutes. They're not as accurate. They're not nearly as sensitive as PCR. They're sometimes about 50% as sensitive. However, uh, if you're planning to go out and gather somewhere or do to, you know, go into a lower risk setting, I wouldn't use them to screen before you have major surgery or anything. But if you're going to gather for, you know, new year's Eve is one of those things. Um, it's a good, quick and easy way that you could do a test at home. And that can guide your decision as to whether you're going to go visit people or join up in a group. And that's a significant part of uh, controlling the spread of COVID.
1: Yeah. As we're in winter now, people get common cold. So people get all scared sometimes now when we start to feel cold symptoms. Do you have any different recommendation, recommendations for individuals with or without symptoms?
2: Um, sure. I mean, the concern's always going to be if you have some symptoms uh, to, to find out whether those symptoms are COVID or not. Um, so a good first step is to do one of these rapid COVID tests. If it's positive, you know, you have it. If it's, uh, if it's negative because of the lower sensitivity, uh, you might need to consult with your healthcare provider and, uh, figure out what the next step is there. Because if your symptoms look a lot like COVID, you have to start worrying about a false negative result from one of the lower sensitivity rapid antigen tests. And, uh, you know, your healthcare provider might want you to follow up with the more accurate, uh, PCR test.
1: Yeah, what do you do if you you think you've had an exposure to somebody?
2: Uh, it's always a good idea to talk to your you know, healthcare provider or if you're in a work situation or a school situation, uh, they will have guidelines for that. And these guidelines are rapidly evolving and they differ from place to place. So there's not a one size fits all recommendation for that. Um, but generally, most people are recommending that you can, you can use one of these rapid antigen tests that you have at home. I think the idea that the government has of having every household have a few of these in the medicine cabinet so they're available for these exact situations is a good plan. Um, It gives you a way to test uh, quickly and get a quick answer. However, there is a window period um, before your virus level comes up to the levels needed for those tests to detect the virus. So if your first test is negative, that's good news. Um, But you're not really sure that you're negative because you might be in that window. If you're not having any symptoms, um, you should retest yourself uh, two or three days or four days later, and with two consecutive negative tests, you can have a pretty high level of confidence that you're negative. That's why most of these testing kits come in packages of two.
1: Oh, okay, great. Good to know. I'm going to hit you with some rapid-fire questions. You ready? Can tests detect which variant you have?
2: Uh, The current tests do not. Um, There are some tests uh, that test for three different uh, PCR targets on these. And uh, one of those targets just happens to be uh, a target where an Omicron variant has a mutation. So if you happen to be using one of those PCR tests, you could make an assumption if it was Omicron. Um, But variant testing has not been rolled out for clinical purposes at this point. It hasn't been necessary because Omicron is now virtually 100% of cases. Wow. What can people do to make
1: sure their at-home tests are as accurate as possible?
2: Um, Follow the package instructions very carefully for how to administer the test and also how to store the test. Uh, All of the packages will have instructions on them for what uh, temperatures you should keep them stored at. And you should avoid the extremes of hot or cold temperatures or freezing these things if it says you can't freeze them or putting them in very high moisture environments. Don't store them next to your shower or something like that. Okay. Uh,
1: how common are false negatives?
2: Well, again, with the less sensitive uh, antigen tests, uh, false positives can be very, uh, or false negatives can be very common. Um, you uh, are required to have a much higher viral level for those tests to detect uh, if you're positive or not, because they're looking directly at the viral proteins. And this basically works by an antibody antigen reaction between the viral protein and the chemicals in the test kit, which then turn a different color so you can see it. So it requires more than the PCR tests require. Um, So uh, those false negative rates can be fairly high. And that's why the two consecutive test strategy uh, is needed for people who are asymptomatic.
1: Do you recommend one test uh, at home test over another at home test?
2: There are differences in the accuracy. I think they all kind of fit into that large category. And as long as you understand that they're, you know, somewhere like half as sensitive um, as the PCR tests, you'll be okay. And nothing is being distributed uh, by the government that's grossly inaccurate. But the most common one that's available is the Abbott by now. And that's actually one of the best performers that can get up as high as uh, 75% as sensitive as a PCR test, which is pretty good for an antigen test.
1: Dr. Brining, how has Omicron changed the nature of testing?
2: You know, I think because of the extremely rapid spread that we've seen of Omicron, it has really driven the testing demand, um, even exceeding, you know, the amount of capacity we have now in the lab industry, which is a lot more than we had before. Um, That's actually good news because it means people are aware of the need for testing and people are using that information to uh, guide their behavior, um, which is the way we ultimately get this under control for Omicron and any of the emerging variants. Uh, There was concern at the beginning uh, as to whether the test would be as accurate in detecting Omicron, and uh, the industry is very well poised to answer those questions. So, whenever a new variant emerges, there's immediate testing to see if all the test kits we use are accurate against Omicron, and they are.
1: That was Dr. Dwayne Brining, Executive Director of Northwell Health Labs. Tune in next week, January 25th, to hear our full conversation with Dr. Brining, who shares insight into Lab Gold, a low-cost, highly reliable PCR test that he says may solve many of the problems with COVID-19 testing by rapidly expanding capacity and access. Now back to David, who is joined by Dr. Charles Slyon.
0: Dr. Schlein, thanks for joining us. Omicron is creating more difficulty for, for children compared to the previous variants. Do we know why that's the case?
3: Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of theories. Um, it's pretty clear that this variant has a predilection for the upper airway. Um, if, you, if you think about it, you talk to your friends or relatives who have had, who have come down with Omicron, Many of them have complained of sore throats and, you know, raspy voice as like the major symptom. You know, besides low-grade fever and congestion, another major symptom. So, with with the original uh, virus, uh, that was really not a big problem uh, in terms of sore throat. You know, it was attacking the lungs, which is why. Severe pneumonia was so serious earlier on, and even with Delta, and this virus, for whatever reason, I don't think we have figured out yet—you uh, know what receptors it's attacking that are different that allows it to adhere to the upper airway as compared to the lower airway. But uh, that's a big difference, and so. Kids with smaller upper airways are going to get more symptomatic, especially if it's in the airway. The airway is smaller. So if you have a, you know, a baby with a five millimeter airway, for example, and you get inflammation and congestion that's you know two and a half millimeters thick, you've cut the airway down in half. You know, an adult that has a 12, 14 millimeter airway, and you have two millimeters of congestion, you're only cutting it a little bit. And I'm not going to go into like the laws of physics and the equations, but you know, when you cut the airway down by 50 percent, the resistance to airflow is much, much greater, and it leads to airway obstruction and and symptoms that, for example, like croup. Um, And so that's going to affect smaller children more than uh, other variants that just weren't particularly, uh, that children were not particularly prone to in terms of uh, pneumonia, for example.
0: Are are younger kids, the, the under five group perhaps, or maybe even younger than that, more susceptible to this as far as ending up in the hospital? I know that it spreads through every community and every age group. But when you end up in the hospital, do you see more kids who are much younger or is it sort of spread across?
3: Well, there's a couple of ways to answer that question, David. I I think that healthy kids are more prone for hospitalization if they're young because of what I'm talking about. Um, You know, so we see a spread because, um, you know, older kids with, let's say particularly neurologic issues or others um, that may be acquired over the course of time or worsen over the course of time are gonna be the most prone to hospitalization. But if you take kids without any preexisting illness, the babies clearly are getting into the hospital more than older kids are if they're healthy.
0: So what's the latest at Cohen Children's and Northwell Health as sort, of, as sort of give us a little bit of an overview of where we are right now with COVID-19 and our younger patients?
3: Well, I think the news is generally better than it was. Uh, we had peaked about two weeks ago with uh, almost 60 children in the hospitalized. We are actually at about half of that. Um, That number's been pretty steady for the last couple of days, so uh, about half of those patients are actually in our ICU.
0: And we're recording this podcast on January 18th. Are all of those kids sick from COVID, or did some of them test positive while they were there for some other reason?
3: Uh, We have a few that were just tested positive that were here for other reasons, but generally, um, the majority of the kids with COVID have been here primarily for complications of COVID. So, you know, look, these are clearly much higher numbers than we were running before Omicron, uh, where, you know, for the last few months, we had been running, I would say, one to five patients hospitalized. So, you know, this is a multifold increase. The numbers are not tremendous. We're not, fill, you know, filling the entire hospital. But, you know, the important thing is most of those kids are, uh, most of them are not vaccinated or only partially vaccinated. Um, and in fact, the, so it seems to be the combination of pre-existing conditions with non-vaccination. So the kids who were vaccinated all did have pre-existing conditions. And if you look at the population you know, which is, you know, figure 60 to seven seventy percent vaccinated in this area, um, you could, you know, do the math, it's much better to be vaccinated, than not vaccinated in terms of the potential to land in the hospital.
0: Just want to read you a couple of stats that I had just pulled earlier today, because the percentage of eligible kids who are vaccinated, it's relatively low. And it's maybe even more than relatively low among some age groups. PBS said last week that only one in five kids, one in five from five to 11 years of age are vaccinated against COVID nationwide. Some states that number was as low as 5%. So in other words, nobody's getting their kids vaccinated in those states. And now even from the 12 to 17 year group, about half are, nation, are, are vaccinated nationwide. Why has it been such an uphill battle to get parents to vaccinate their kids?
3: Well, if you think about it, first of all, the numbers in this area are a little better. They're not great. So I'm not, you know, it's not like they're double, but um, the numbers in this area are probably closer to, you know, 40 to 50% for the young ones and maybe 60% for the, for the older kids. Um, I think it's the same struggle, only worse than we've had nationally with adults. That same reasons, you know, first of all, you have the adults who ha- won't get vaccinated themselves. They're not going surely not going to vaccinate their kids for the most part. And then there are other people who were more hesitant, but did ultimately vaccinate themselves as adults. But because of that hesitancy, they're nervous about the vaccine in their own children. Now, the problem of course, is that the kids seem to be spreading it at the same rate as adults do. So even if the kids are healthy and only getting mild disease, they're still spreading it to adults who aren't always healthy and they have comorbidities or the older folks or grandparents. Um, so that, that is a problem.
0: Going back to the beginning, March, April of 2020, not, it, it didn't impact kids at the same rate as adults, right? But there were some kids who got sick. It wasn't like you didn't have any adolescents in, in the hospital. Has long COVID been an issue for those kids? Have we tracked this?
3: Yeah, we, uh, we have. Um, there are some long COVID, kids with long COVID symptoms uh, there's no question. Very few, because there were very few kids that were affected with the initial um, with the initial virus. So it's sort of a relative question. Uh, but clearly, we've all been treating children long term. Now, luckily, uh, we could talk a little bit about MISC and what's happening now in terms of the post inflammatory disease, um, you know, after after a COVID infection. Uh, But most of those kids are actually with treatment early on have actually done really well and have had no long-term sequelae either. So I think we've been really fortunate uh, that those kids have actually responded well to uh, treatment in the hospital.
0: And and finally, just if if you could talk a little bit about what are the best ways to for parents to help protect their kids. I would imagine it includes mask wearing, getting vaccinated. Anything else?
3: No, it's, you know, it's it's sort of the same elements that we talk about with adults. Um, try to stay away from, you know, events with large crowds. Try to stay masked. Um, you know, we've heard through the the couple of years now from certain parents, you know, how could I put a mask on my kid? In fact, most kids over the age of two or three have actually done pretty well with masks. You know, when you introduce it to them, you make it fun, you know, maybe you, you let them do some artwork on the mask, um. You show them that you're wearing the mask. You know, kids copy their parents, right? And uh, you know, if they're symptomatic, don't send them to daycare. You know, don't send them to school if they have symptoms. Um, keep them home. Keep them isolated from other people. Obviously, you need to take care of your child. You don't want to isolate them if they're young and adolescent. You could. They probably favor that. Keep it isolated to your household. And obviously, if the kid is symptomatic, hopefully the adults are vaccinated so they can take care of their kids and not be too worried about serious infection. So uh, it's important for parents to recognize if you know your child, let's say there was COVID in the household, and you know, a month later is not acting right, or they're acting lethargic, or they look fatigued, or they're that uh, you should seek medical care, call your pediatrician.
0: Which age groups are eligible to get the vaccine now?
3: Yeah, so, you know, we've, we've evolved over the last couple of months, a few months, fortunately. So kids that are uh, uh, five and over should be vaccinated. Um, kids who are 12 and over should get the booster. Um, and then there are outlier kids who are immunosuppressed, even younger, down to five, can get a booster. You know, they severely immunosuppressed. Children who are being treated, unfortunately, for, for cancer uh, or have other conditions that they're immunosuppressed uh, can get a booster down to, down to five. We still, the companies are still doing the research on the under five-year-old group. So there hasn't been anything approved yet uh, for the younger ones.
0: Dr. Schlein, thanks for joining me on 20-Minute Health Talk. And to you, the listener, hope you have a great week. I'm David Reich-Hale, and this was 20-Minute Health Talk. Get more expert insight from some of the leading voices in healthcare today. Subscribe to 20-Minute Health Talk on Podbean, Pandora, Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts.